so great to be here with you all. We uh, read the Psalms of Ascent. You know the Psalms of Ascent? Psalm 128-ish around there. And uh, when we were here in, <clears throat> in Custer, I used to always joke to visitors, you know, you have to sing the Songs of Ascent when you come up to Jerusalem, right? Like in, you know, in the Middle East, everywhere you, they would give directions. It wasn't north, south, east, west. It was you went up to Jerusalem. Well, you come up to Custer. It is fun to, to be back, and that was a great song to sing uh, before we start this lecture. But also, man, you all are loud. So hopefully tomorrow morning we wake up the tourists. That's great. Uh, let's go ahead and look at, let's, I'm just going to read Revelation 1, 4 through 7, and uh, get us started there. You can turn with me or not, but I'm going to read here. Revelation 1, verse 4 says, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we want to give Christ the proper glory. We're so thankful for him. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful that he loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, made us a kingdom. Priest to you, we are privileged to call you Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And Lord, we long to see that day when Christ does return, amen. <clears throat> uh, let me just introduce kind of our time tonight with a sort of a case study. I'm going to try to do this just to kind of apply it to, uh, to biblical counseling I'm thinking of formal counseling, but it could be informal, it could be discipleship, it could be wherever you're at in your ministries, it could be in your parenting, uh, whatever. But I'm going to introduce you to a gal, uh, we'll call her name Rachel, I've changed the names and a few of the details in case this ever gets its way back to anybody. You know, I've been a pastor in now three different churches, so who knows, it might even be you. So Rachel's a young gal attending college, early 20s. She's recently married, just been married just a few months, highly intelligent, very capable. And she is desperate for help when she comes sees us. Because she, and I say us because Dana sits in with me all the time and helps me out, particularly when I'm counseling ladies. But she comes to see us. She's desperate for help because she's having these reoccurring panic attacks. Seems like right now everybody's having panic attacks. That's been my job the last two years is counseling panic attacks. Palpitations, pounding heart, sweating, trembling, shortness of breath, chest pain, discomfort, fear of losing control, fear of dying, so on and so forth. That's what she's having, all of those. Uh, she experiences regular fear and worry. The panic attacks are debilitating to her. They're embarrassing. Um, her mother has, has been on psychotropic meds uh, her whole, whole life of this young lady. And this young lady fears turning into her mother, med-dependent, moody, bipolar, and her mother had some serious side effects from the meds that complicated her health, <clears throat> and also just being in constant search for medication that would work. Is the Bible sufficient to help this girl with her problems? Does the pastor or the church have anything good to say? Can they offer any kind of help? Or should they just send this lady to the experts, whoever you might think the experts are in that situation? Is the Bible sufficient for counseling? Uh, we're talking about the Bible's sufficiency for sinners and sufferers. Uh, that's the question we're going to be discussing tonight. I don't think when we come to the topic of biblical counseling <clears throat> that there is a more important um, doctrine or understanding that needs kind of cleared right at the beginning. But before we get to that question, we really need to understand what we're talking about when we're talking about counseling. When we say counseling, what is counseling? Right, the Bible isn't sufficient to teach us calculus. 
Hallelujah. Otherwise, all Christians, we would have to really know calculus. I'm so glad, but it doesn't do that. So the Bible's not sufficient to teach you how to do calculus. Uh, So what is it that we're saying when we're saying that the Bible is sufficient for counseling? Well, in order to do that, we better define what we're talking about when we're talking about counseling. Uh, Heath Lambert, one of the prominent uh, theologians on this subject in our day, has said that counseling is a conversation where one party with questions and problems who, one party with questions and problems and troubles seeks assistance from, some, assistance from someone they believe has answers, solutions, and help. He goes on to add, counseling is an exchange of wisdom in relationship. This wisdom might be correct or incorrect, and the relationship might be formal or informal, but regardless of these variations, the essential task of counseling is unchanged. By that definition, we're all doing some kind of counseling. Jay Adams, the father of biblical counseling movement, he said, counseling is the process of helping others to love God and their neighbors. It is about changing lives by changing values, beliefs, relationships, attitudes, behaviors. By that definition, every parent is doing counseling as they're raising their kids. Secular definition from the American Psychological Association says, counseling focuses on how people function both personally and in their relationships at all ages. Counseling psychology addresses the emotional, social, work, school, and physical health concerns people may have at different stages in their lives, focusing on uh, typical life stresses and more severe issues with which people may struggle as individuals and as part of families, groups, and organizations. Fairly decent definition, meshing with what I just said. That's some of what we're talking about uh, when we're talking about this subject of counseling. And it is drier out here than it is in Louisville, Kentucky. (laughs) Fortunately for you all, you would not get away with having the windows open in Louisville, Kentucky, that is for sure. Um, But what people really mean when they ask that question, is the Bible sufficient for counseling, is really this. In, In my experience of doing this for the last, I don't know, 14, 15, maybe even more years, biblical counseling, what they're really getting at is this. Is, is the Bible really sufficient to handle obsessive compulsive, compulsive disorders, bipolar, panic disorder, like I just mentioned, and all these other disorders that are mentioned in the, uh, basically the Bible for psychologists called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, Volume 5. Um, in there, panic disorder is, is explained as this, palpitations, pounding heart, sweating, trembling, shortness of breath, Chest pain, discomfort, fear of losing control, fear of dying, what that gal had that I mentioned earlier. Four of these need to occur with an abrupt surge of intense fear or discomfort that reaches a peak within minutes. And then there are these other criteria that that they pile on there to uh, diagnose someone as having this panic disorder. So when people ask, is the Bible sufficient for counseling? They're really saying, is it sufficient for that? Can the Bible help Rachel? Most... I mean, every unbeliever is going to say, absolutely not. That's kind of, that's quackery to think that the Bible would be able to help somebody that's dealing with some of these significant issues that are in that manual. Um, But even amongst Christians, this is a hot topic debate. A hot topic debate. This is something that splits churches. Um, Most Christians would say, no. The Bible doesn't have any place in this arena? Um, I would say yes. Uh, The Bible is sufficient for counseling. Uh, It is sufficient for non-organic problems, uh, non-physical problems. It's not not sufficient for organic problems, not sufficient for physical problems. Okay, I don't want a doctor removing my appendix who believes that the Bible is sufficient for organic problems. (laughs) Don't even come close to me, right? Um, Biblical counselors, they love science. They love medicine. We love brain surgeons, neuroscientists. Yes, we want to learn more about those things, but those are organic issues that are being dealt with there. Those are physical issues. And the Bible is sufficient for non-organic. That's what we're saying. The Bible is sufficient for non-organic problems, which are counseling problems as we just defined. It's sufficient to do anything that, that the Bible claims that it's sufficient to do. And it says that it's sufficient to do that as we'll get to it. And so... It's sufficient for counseling. Um, And we could say more than this, but I'm going to give you five general reasons. 
should be in your notes. Uh, the nature of scripture, the nature of man, the nature of our true need, the nature of our purpose, and the limits of common grace. Those five things. You were trying to fill in the blanks. You thought I was just going to give it to you easy, right? You can blame Kyle because I was like, if you decide to do the blanks, here's where I would put them. And then he put them there. So that's, that's Kyle wanted you all to be like caring about filling in the blanks. It'll keep you awake, right? Since you can't drink coffee this late. Did anybody drink real caffeine late, this late? Raise your hand if you drank caffeinated drink. Okay, so there's a few of you out there that need some counseling because you're probably not sleeping well at night, you know, and you're probably having panic attacks. And we'll... Okay, so first, uh, the nature of Scripture. The Bible's claims about itself. So the nature of Scripture, uh, these are the reasons, general reasons. Again, there's way more than this, but for the time we have, you're only going to get these five. Um, 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm going to read it because when I preach, I have a really bad habit of not quoting verses well. 2 Timothy 3.16, you should have it memorized, hopefully, says, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be, comp may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so that says all scripture is breathed out by God. Uh, that is, that it comes from him, as if he was standing here audibly just speaking to us. Uh, so it comes from him, therefore it can be trusted. It comes from him, and so it is profitable. It's not harmful. And it's profitable, it says, in these areas, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Uh, it is the, the Bible is the standard for truth. It's the standard for correcting lies. It comes from God, and so it is sufficient for teaching the truth. It's sufficient for correcting falsehoods, for correcting lies, and for training in righteousness. What is righteousness? Well, the context here is talking about moral righteousness, uh, not in the legal court sense, which in some other places in the scripture, righteousness would have that kind of connotation, but here it's moral righteousness. So the scriptures are profitable. That is, they are advantageous, right? That's what profitable means. They're advantageous. They are beneficial for training in moral righteousness. What is that? It's obedience to God's commands, upright and holy living, salvation, right? The scriptures are sufficient for salvation and sanctification. Uh, those who are in relational difficulties, they need righteousness, those enslaved to sinful habits need upright and holy living. The scriptures equip a person to also to train others in righteousness. 2 Peter 1.3 says, uh, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Uh, a world-class theologian, Tom Schreiner, explains of this verse, when Peter referred to life, eternal life is intended. Believers have eternal life even now and yet await the day when such life will be consummated at the eschaton, at the, in the end. Godliness, that word, is linked to life because the latter is not gained without the former. Eternal life is not merely the experience of bliss but also involves transformation, right? Let me say it again. Eternal life is not merely the experience of bliss but also involves transformation so that believers are morally perfected and made like God. Hence, believers should live in a godly way even now, though perfection and godliness will not be ours until the day that Christ returns. So what follows under that head, heading of, of godliness? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Okay, it's talking about salvation, but it's also talking about progressive sanctification, moving us from sinner to saint. And so what falls underneath that, that heading, that category of godliness. Well, all those counseling issues that, that we kind of mentioned earlier. Uh, it's godly, for example. Wouldn't you agree it's godly to trust God? It's godly to trust him. If someone trusts God and they do it well, we would say that person's godly. It's godly to be humble like Christ. When we see someone who's extremely humble and not arrogant, we go, man, that's, that guy's a godly man. That woman's a godly woman. Uh, it's godly to be calm, not anxious. Right relationships, those are godly. Positive interaction with your neighbors where they appreciate you and you're a blessing to them, that's godly. A solid work ethic, that's godly. All that is underneath that. And that's what 2 Peter 1.3 is saying. 
the Bible's claims of itself that it's sufficient for those things. Philippians 4.19 uh, says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. In context there, everything needed is to please God and stand firm in the faith. God is gonna supply every need of the believer to live righteously before him. Again, that relates to the issues that you deal with when you're counseling people. The Bible says God's gonna supply every need that you need for that situation. But here I want you to turn with me to Psalm 19. This was really my aim. I went through those texts quickly as kind of proof text. <clears throat> if you don't get anything other than what I'm gonna say here in chapter 19, pay attention to this because I think it's huge. Psalm 19, um, one through six is talking about general revelation. The heavens declare the glory of God, right? Sky above proclaims his handiwork. You can look uh, to the stars above and you can see that God is glorious. You know something about God from his general revelation. It goes to everybody, so we call it general. Uh, special revelation doesn't go to everybody um, and it's specific. It comes from his word and from, his, from himself, from God himself. Uh, so verse seven, let me just read verse seven down to 10. It says the law, and when I'm reading this, pay attention to two things. What, what it says about God's word and all these things in the, um, these first several verses from seven down to 11 uh, are all synonyms for God's word, right? So pay attention to what the Bible says of itself, um, what it says about God's word, and then pay attention to what it says that God's word does. Those two things, and I'll come back and kind of summarize. But just think about this as I'm reading it. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Notice what the word of God is. It's perfect. It's sure. It's right. It's pure. It's clean. Together, true and righteous. Desirable. At least that. And look what it does. What it says that it does. 7a, it restores the soul. Makes wise those who are simple. 7B, 8A, rejoice, rejoices the heart. 8B, enlightens the eyes. 9, we could say it produces in us this healthy, wholesome, beneficial fear of God, uh, which is to say it can deepen and sustain our relationship with God. It can provide stability and boldness in a person's life, courage, remove insecurities. 10B, it brings pleasure and joy, sweetness to life. 11, it provides guidance and protection, makes us truly satisfied. All of those things. God's word has a transforming power to meet all the non-physical needs that we have in life. If the Bible is what these verses says that it is, then we should have this immense, profound appreciation of God's word as it relates to counseling issues. What are those with counseling problems, what do they need? Okay, what I'm getting at here is if you ask the, the depressed person, um, do you want your soul restored? Do you want joy? What do you think that they would say? I'll put this down here for a second. Can I still talk without that being there? Okay, great. It was like bothering me. <laughs> what do you think that they would say? I've counseled a lot of depressed people and I'll tell you what they'd say since you're not talking back to me like they do in the South. <laughs> they would say, yes. That is what I want. How did you know? I wanted my soul restored. What do you think, you know, what is a person who's made a mess out of their life, right? That's what counseling is, is people who come in and their, their life is this tangled ball of yarn and they just throw it there in front of you and say, help me. What do they need? Do, do they need wisdom? Do they need stability in their life? Yeah, absolutely. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that the Bible is true? Do we believe that it tells us the truth or not? I didn't write it. 
It says that it restores the soul. That's what people need. If the Bible is true, then we need to trust the Bible when it says what it says. We, we need to trust that it's going to do what it says it's going to do and have complete confidence in that. The Bible tells us that it's sufficient for counseling issues as we have defined counseling. The scriptures are powerful to change people's lives. So that's, that's the, the first reason why the scriptures are sufficient for counseling. Second, we would say the nature of man and of God. And we're talking about the limits of psychology. Right, the nature of man and of God. This is why the Bible is sufficient. Man is limited in knowledge versus God who is omniscient. He knows all things. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. Why? Because you don't know everything's going on. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And he will make straight your paths. Again, you have some, somebody standing before you and they're coming to you with this counseling problem with this ball of yarn, tangled ball of yarn. They need their path straight. Yeah, absolutely. Jeremiah 17, 5. And this one's a fun one to, to read if you want to read with me. I'm going through all these things quick because I got a lot of stuff to talk about. And it's all super important. So I'll just read to you, Jeremiah 17, 5. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes. For its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of the drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. And we're gonna get through this in a second, but the heart as it's being used here is the, the center of our inner person. And it's talking about your thinking, your believing, your desires, and your wants, right? At least those things. I, the Lord, search that. I search your inner man to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Job 38. After Job, you know, says all his things and his friends talk, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I'll question you. And you make it known to me. Definitely not kind and tender enough for our society, right? Dress for action like a man. I'll question you. Stop. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? This is God to Job. Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far shall you come and no farther and here shall your proud ways be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? I'd love to just read the whole thing. Right? We, we should put our confidence in, confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture rather than man's insight and understanding because man's problems and the solution to man's problems are beyond what we can fully understand. Only God can discern what's going on inside a person's inner man. God is infinite. Man is finite. Ezekiel 11, 5 says, For I know the things that come in... God is saying this. God says, I know the things that come into your mind. And that word throughout the Old Testament is translated mind and heart interchangeably. For I know the things that come into your mind, every one of them. A.W. Pink said, God is omniscient. He knows everything, everything possible, everything actual, all events and all creatures of the past, the present, and the future. He is perfectly acquainted with every detail in the life of every being in heaven and earth and in hell. 
And he created us. Genesis 1.26. I want us to feel the weight of all these texts. That's, that's the point here. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them. Just said a word, created them. 1 Corinthians 1.19. 1 Corinthians 1.19. word says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is a scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 1 Corinthians 2, 6. Actually, yeah, 1 Corinthians 2, 6 and 9. Um, nope, wrong one. Anyways, uh, 1 Corinthians, yeah, 2. 2, 6 and 9. It says, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord our God. Isaiah 2, 22 says, stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for, what, for of what account is he? Isaiah 40, verse 13, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the, the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Right? All, all the wisdom of this world is but a drop in a bucket. So man is limited. Man doesn't know everything. That's why we trust God when he talks definitively and authoritatively on what's going on about, you know, describing what's going on inside a person and what is the cause of their counseling problems. And then when he gives solutions. Um, underneath this same point, uh, man is limited also, though, not only because of his finiteness, his finitude, uh, but by his own sinfulness. Proverbs 28, 26 says, whoever trusts in his own mind, and that word again is translated as heart also. You can use that interchangeably. Whoever trusts in his own heart and his own inner man is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Right? We're, we're prone to interpret research in ways that paint our sins and our shortcomings in the best light. That's our default. Rather than with an unbiased uh, objectivism. Wayne Mack, one of my former professors, wrote on the sinfulness of man. He said, we should put our confidence in the sufficiency of scripture rather than man's insights for understanding man, his problems, and the solutions to his problems because sin will inevitably cause him to leave the God of the Bible out of whatever conclusion he draws. His antipathy uh, toward this God will always cause him to distort the truth and draw erroneous conclusions. He lacks uh, the Lord and therefore he lacks the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1, 7. Um, also because of what uh, people talk about the noetic effect of sin. Uh, noose is this Greek word mind, so they say noetic effect of sin just means uh, the effect of sin on the mind. I'll go on back all the way to Genesis 3. Um, since Genesis 3, every human being that's lived, aside from Christ, their, their inner man and their body, that interface, right? Because we can't separate who we are, we're, we're whole beings, that interface doesn't work well anymore. That's an issue. That Jeremiah 17, 9 passage that I read said the heart is desperately sick, who can understand it? That's either true or it's not true. The inner man is desperately sick and twisted, who can understand it? And then it goes on in verse 10 and it answers, who can understand it? Only God. I mean, that's either true or it's not true. Who can understand the heart? Right? As counselors, as people are discipling, trying to help people with problems, we don't know. But God knows. That's why I have to use his word. It, it's, the, it's the height of arrogance to say, oh, I figured something out about what's going on in your heart apart from God's word. Because it's in, 
in direct contradiction to Jeremiah 17.9. Psalm 14.3 says, no one understands. Romans 3.10-18 says, the wrath of God suppresses uh, the wrath of God is on men. Men suppress the truth. Ephesians 4.17, in the futility of their mind and the hardness of hearts. Right? So don't place your trust in man. These secular disciplines have made a habit of being wrong because they leave God out. This doesn't mean that they are not intelligent but that they're misled because they left God out. It doesn't mean that psychology hasn't made some great observations by looking at people and come up with things that are actually consistent with what the Bible says. You know, we're not saying that. But what we are saying is that um, their di diagnostic, what they think is the problem is wrong. And then since they have that wrong, then their solutions are gonna be wrong. And then their solutions are wrong also because they leave the word out, Right? So they make some great observations, but this is where, where they're at. We don't have a standard by which to measure what is true or false except God's word. If it isn't taught in God's word and we're trying to study something that's going on in the inner man, then it might be an error. How are we gonna know? We can only know by looking to God's word and seeing if it's true. Why not just skip the movie ad and just go to this? We're, we're, we're so sinful through and through. Noetic depravity, however you want to say it. Um, that we discussed even our own selves, even on this side of redemption, right? The more we learn, the more we learn that we need God. We can hardly do anything really without the effects of sin, right? So... The Bible's sufficient for counseling um, because, of, because man isn't omniscient. Our own sinfulness, uh, it ruins our observations. You know, kind of like if you had kids, you know, when I was a kid, I had a bunch of Legos, but I would always leave them in, the, in the, uh, the sun in the window, on the windowsill. You know what happens when you do that with Legos? They melt. And they melt and they twist a little bit. I still could use them, but they didn't quite fit together perfectly. You know, they, they fit together. I mean, that's like every human being. Even on this side of the cross, we, we're not quite, we're gonna be perfected when we see Christ and our Legos are all gonna be nice and clean and well fit together. But until then, you know, it's like they start to straighten out some, but you know, they're still a little bit twisted. That's, that's what we are. But God is perfect, right? We just read the law of the Lord is perfect. His word is perfect. There's no flaw in it. Absolutely perfect fastball strike every single time. Why am I saying all this? Well, saying all this because I'm trying to make a point. Hope to wrap this up here. A former professor of mine is a renowned Christian psychologist. He sees psychology as a hard science. And he believes the doctrine of sufficiency taught by the reformers uh, only applied to salvation. The Bible is sufficient for salvation, but not for these counseling issues. And he believes the doctrine of common grace uh, necessitates the study of psychology in order to learn how to really care for the soul. I'll come and describe that here in a second. He says the Bible will help us form our foundation. We need that good foundation. So he's even willing to say, yeah, we don't want Freud. We don't want Skinner. We don't want all these secular psychologists, but we're, gonna, we're just gonna do psychology well. You know, we love the Bible. We love these same doctrines, but, and that'll be the foundation. But then on top of that, then we're gonna do our own study of people's souls, right? We're going to do our own research, our own study of the inner man. That's, that's what, he, what he would say. In order to really care for the soul, the Bible's not sufficient. We need to do our own studies. We disagree on this exact point of what I've just been saying right here. This is why this is huge. How can finite man understand the inner workings of the human soul definitively? Would you want someone operating on your heart that was like, I mean, we've done some studies and some models and we think that it's this. I mean, we got like about a 50-50% chance we, we think that this is really what's wrong with you and, and, how, and how this is gonna heal you. When it comes to the workings of the, of the inner man, counseling issues, there's no organic test to run. There's no blood work that can, that can come back and say this is exactly what, what your issue is. There's no urine sample 
Simply observations and guesses, if they're honest. That's it. I asked this guy, how can we trust the Christian psychologist and his findings? Because of these things. He said, well, that's why we need to exercise extreme discernment and caution. That's why we need to study hard and be wise and really do it well. That's where we disagree. He has a too high of a view of mankind and mankind's abilities. A.W. Tozer wrote, the moral shock suffered by us through our mighty break with the, he- with the high will of heaven has left us all with a permanent trauma affecting every part of our nature. There is disease both in ourselves and in our environment. We can't trust our own interpretation of things. Only God's infallible word. We were created as dependent beings and that's got why God gave us a manual by his grace, a manual that explains to us what's going on with us, what our issues are, and, and where we can find help and how to be helped. We are finite sinners. There are things that we just don't know, and so we, we have to trust God's word on the matter. We need to have an accurate view of man and his abilities. I would say we need to have a low view of man and a high view of God. Only the, scri- the scriptures are sufficient for counseling issues. Third, uh, third point here, we would also say this because of the nature of our true need. Right? The nature of our true need, salvation and Christ-likeness according to Scripture. I mean, what does man truly need? I'm asking Christians. I'm assuming that, right? If you don't know the Lord, I'd love to share the gospel to you, but I'm going to assume that, uh, that I'm talking to believers. What does man truly need? 100 years from now, what does man truly need? He needs Christ. He needs the gospel. He needs regeneration. He needs a new heart that's talked about in Ezekiel 36. He needs a, needs a new inner man. Where is that true need found? And then, Axel, you can go to that next slide, the heart chart here. Okay, this is on your diagram. If you don't understand it, um, we can talk about it later. But basically what it's doing here is uh, the top there where the sun is, that's a circumstance, and it kind of goes around this way. It's describing what the Bible says about the inner man, about our heart. So you have a circumstance there. Um, when a circumstance happens in our lives, something, life situation, down here to the right, you got thinking and believing, Psalm 14.1. Those are all proof texts. You can look them up later. Uh, but thinking and believing are, are uh, categories that the Bible attributes to what the function of the heart is, right, in part. The, the heart is more than this in the Bible, but it's at least this. So when we're talking about the biblical heart, we're talking about the things we're thinking, and the things we're believing. The fool says in his heart, Psalm 14.1, there is no God. He says it, right? He's thinking it, but he's also believing that there is no God. And then down here, we have desires and commitments. Desires, things that we want, commitments, things that, that are our goals in life. Um, Psalm 37.4, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart, right? So desires are attributed to a function of the heart. Um, Proverbs 19.21 uh, it talks about how man plant, plans in his mind, but the Lord directs his steps. It uses the word mind in the ESV, but the Hebrew word is the regular word for heart. And then on the other side over here, you got responses. Emotions, they're a little tricky one. I'm not going to get into those too much. They're attributed to the heart, what's going on in the inner man, and they're also attributed in Scripture to the outer man, things you can see. So the outer man is the, is the tree there, and Kyle's going to talk more about this tomorrow. But, you know, it's the fruit on the tree, things you can see. You get angry, you know, you kick the dog. That's the fruit on the tree. The roots are the things that are going on in your inner man. What's going on in your thinking and believing and desires and commitments. In order to help people change and to grow, we got to address what they're thinking and believing and desiring and committed to. But how can we even start that conversation when the Bible says they need a new heart? So that before they can even believe true things, I don't even know what I would say in a counseling session if I didn't have the Bible. Because what I'm doing every session is trying to help them go from False thinking to true thinking. From wrong beliefs to true beliefs. From wanting the wrong thing to wanting the right things. From having the wrong goals in life to having the right goals in life. All impossible without God's work giving them a new heart that has a new capacity to believe, to think true things, believe true things, desire true things, and want true things. And, and then they need the Holy Spirit desperately. Like, you, you can't change your desires. 
Every counseling situation I ever do, I ask the person, what's your favorite ice cream? And they tell me, um, uh, Rocky Road. I'm like, I got bad news for you. I just read the scriptures and it says that Rocky Road is Satan's flavor. <laughs> vanilla is, vanilla is God's, God's flavor, so you should want vanilla. Okay, now we go down to Baskin Robbins or whatever it is, you know, and, and we go to get ice cream and what, what flavor do you want? I'm like, well, I, Rocky Road. I'm like, you're, you're satanic, <laughs> right? I mean, we can't change our own desires. So how does that happen? We, we need salvation and we need God's word to help us grow in all of those areas. You can flip back to the other one or leave it up, whatever you think is best there. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Kyle read it earlier. But just think about this kind of transformation that it talks about. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Okay, I'm going to go through this quick. You're not going to get this down, but you'll get the essence of it. It talks about the kind of transformation here. It's inside out. It's talking about heart change. The goal of the transformation is Christ-likeness, perfection, what Kyle just mentioned. The source of the transformations from the Lord, the Holy Spirit. The means of the transformation is the gospel. The progress of that transformation is a process, one degree of glory to another. The scope of the transformation is all Christians. We all, right? All of which requires, demands God's infallible word. So what are we really trying to accomplish when we're counseling people? Discipling them. What are our goals? Right? And this is where the world's goals are off. And even... Counselors who are Christians who are, who are using psychology. Their goals are off. Because the goal isn't a good life. That's not what the goal is. Uh, Colossians 3.3 3 says we're to set our affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Uh, the goal isn't momentary peace and, and happiness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4.17 and 18, he called all our troubles in this life, and his troubles were severe. He called them light and momentary affliction. That's what's true. The goal is God's glory, what Kyle just said. And we do that by becoming like Jesus. As Christians, if we default to any other goal other than the glory of God, what are we doing? What are we doing? We can't even, you know, and this is where the problem is with secular psychology and Christian counseling using secular psychology. The goals of secular psychology, when you talk to them, somebody comes in and, and they're going to say, okay, uh, we want to strive for normalcy for this man. Normalcy. Well, who gets to determine what normalcy is? There's some pretty weird people out there, right? And then normalcy keeps shifting every 5, 10, 15 years. It used to be, you know, like 20 years ago, if you said someone was a man, everyone just kind of took you at face value. But that's, that's totally changed. So, so what are the goals? We have to set our affections on the things above, not on things of the earth. Secular counseling and Christian counseling that strays from the Bible fixates on the temporal and treats this life as ultimate. Only in the Bible do we find real, true solutions to the problems that people have, counseling problems people have. We need clean hearts before God. We need right spirits. David cries out in Psalm 51, 10 through 12, create in me a clean heart. Right, he said clean heart. Create in me Clean thinking and believing and desires and life goals and renew a right spirit within me. The, right, the Bible is sufficient to help us with our true needs. Fourth here, the nature of our purpose. The nature of our purpose, the reason for our existence. I'm gonna go through this one quick. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. You know, we were created to serve Christ. That's why we were created. We were created for him. Not for ourselves, we were created for him. It's an amazing passage. The secular world just cannot help us here. Ultimately, they cannot help us with our purpose in life. They can't help any human being with their purpose in life. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, Isaiah 43.7, we were created to bring God glory. We do that by being like Christ. Did any of you ever see, uh, parents, I know you're gonna know this, the, the, the Disney movie Cars, the first one. Do you remember that character, Doc Hudson? I think that was his name. He's that older car that teaches Lightning McQueen how to race. Raise your hand just so I know you're awake. Make it interactive. And, and if you're sleeping, don't worry about it. I don't need glasses to read my notes. 
but I do for long distance. I can't see anybody's faces, so you can be sleeping. And also don't whine to me about it because I'm on East Coast time, so it's like 10.40 right now, and I'm like in bed like an hour ago. But anyways, this guy, uh, he's grouch, this, this uh, Doc Hudson, he's grouchy, remember? And he's depressed because he's a race car that's, old too, old, that's too old to race. What do you do with a race car that's too old to race? I mean, right? So he can no longer do what he was designed, we might even say created to do. He, he lost his purpose. That right there, right? If you just stopped and thought about it, all the depression and anxiety in our country, it's really sad. Suicide rates this last year just went out the roof. And, and a lot of it has to do with this. People just don't even know what the purpose is. They don't know why they're here. They, they, they think that they create their own purpose. That's what the world is telling them. But secular theorists, they, they agree with the point that I'm making right here. Baumeister and Vos. These are, you know, this is solid, um, solid research these guys are doing. This is what they say. Finding meaning in life is deeply satisfying. And so when they're counseling people, that's what they're trying to help them find meaning in life, their purpose in life. The world cannot help us with our purpose. It can't help anybody with its purpose. We can't look to ourselves to help us fulfill our own purpose. And we can't look to psychology either. The creature can only look to the creator to discern the why of their existence. That's why we need the scriptures. Only in the scriptures are we going to find what we're created for, why we are here on earth. Our purpose is for Christ and his kingdom. We need redemption in order to bring God glory. And we need to be like Christ in order to bring him glory. So our purpose, our goal in life, why we were created, can't be attained by those worldly philosophies. Psalm 1611 says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All of this requires reconciliation with our creator God. We must look to the scriptures for this. Fifth, uh, the limits of common grace. I got to fly on this one here, meaning I got to move quick. Okay, so it's common in, in uh, Christian counseling circles to hear this phrase, plunder the Egyptians. If you do any reading on this, it's going to come up. In counseling, in the counseling world, what they're saying here is that this means that we take what we learn from the pagans, th things that will help us, things that they've studied, and then we're going to leave the rest. We'll take the good, leave the rest. Uh, but common grace, here's how it's defined in uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It's the good kindness of God that he shows to all people regardless of whether they've experienced the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ alone. It's called common because it comes to all people, believers and unbelievers alike. That's common grace. Uh, common grace is, is God's kindness to his creation, in case I lost you there. <clears throat> that's, that's God's common grace. To believers and unbelievers. Uh, Romans 2.4 says that it is God's kindness, and I would say it's God's common grace, that is meant to lead men to repentance. It's talking about how unbelievers can study, they, they can learn um, some true things, and they can also be blessed. Um, an unbeliever can, can, can drive around the Black Hills and go, this is just wonderful. This is so beautiful. And they can enjoy that. They can enjoy a great weekend with their family. That's God's common grace. Uh, they can also, though, figure out how plumbing works and how to deliver hot water to my shower. Hallelujah, right? I don't know where I'd be without hot water. Whoever figured that out, you know, I'm just happy for them, um, but that was God's common grace. They didn't have to be Christians to figure that out. So God's common grace, as it's used in this discipline of counseling, is talking about God's God-given intellect, or uh, yeah, mankind's God-given intellect. They can figure things out that can help us. Now, the problem, though, if we apply that to psychology is what I just said, and the noetic effects of sin, right? We don't think perfectly. We don't think perfectly. We don't interpret data objectively. So how can we trust what we learn from psychological studies? Again, we can't run a blood sample. There's not a mathematical formula that proves that theory. Uh, the theory simply remains a theory. There's no way to definitively prove it. It can be interesting, maybe even insightful, but it'll tell us, it's not gonna tell us anything definitively about the inner workings of the soul. In addition to that, plundering the Egyptians really was speaking about uh, their silver and their gold, not their pagan philosophies. Okay. Um, Heath Lambert, again, gives this great illustration as to the limits of common grace. There's a book out called Wired for Intimacy by William Struthers. It talks about the, the damaging effects of pornography on the brain. And um, 
Struthers writes in that book how pornography actually changes the neural circuitry of the human brain as the brain processes sexual images and releases powerful and pleasurable chemicals. Lambert comments on that and says, as true and interesting and as helpful as the brain research is in Wired for Intimacy, and as thankful as I am for the manifold common grace that makes such information possible, that information is not what changes men who look at pornography. We do not have unmediated access to the brain's neural circuitry in order to change the effects of pornography on the brain. We do not have mediated access to the brain with the kinds of procedures for change that God has revealed in the Bible and which take place in counseling conversations. Okay, so it's interesting, but it's not exactly what changes. It doesn't help us fix the problem. The Bible tells us how to change people and actually tells us why they're having the problem that they're having. And we really don't know what comes first, the chicken or the egg, whether, uh, and I won't get into that. We'll just leave it right there. (laughs) Interesting, but it's going to be disproven over time. And a new theory will come up that'll rival that one if someone just doesn't like that, if their heart is inclined some other direction. Common grace is, is limited here because of the sinfulness of man, the noetic effect of sin, right? The effect of sin on the brain. Our brains, none of our brains work perfectly. So if you think you had a high IQ, it was not as high as Adam's before the fall. Trust you that. And because of limited knowledge of man. So God, uh, common grace is, is great in realms where scriptures are silent, like plumbing, hot water, but not where scriptures are speaking definitively, not where scripture says that it is the expert, the final, the final perfect understanding. And the scriptures speak to matters that pertain to counseling. I've tried to prove that. In order to plunder the Egyptians in counseling, we would have to trust man over the scriptures. That's the problem. Much of the disagreement here really comes down to our view of science. Biblical counselors are for neuroscientists, neurosurgeons, other MDs. Yes, we want to encourage research in all those areas, but we just don't need, we just don't see psychology as helping fix mankind's problems. Great observations, there's some things that they can help in, in, in uh, learning disabilities, helping people to read who are, who are dyslexic, so on and so forth, if we're going to put that under there, but we need to really narrow and, and define what we're talking about when we're talking about psychology. Right now, it's broad. So yes, I want to know how the brain functions. And if there are ways to improve that, improve that brain's functions, I'm the first one that's going to line up and, and take the surgery. But that's not counseling. We're, now we're not talking about counseling. We're, now we're talking about medicine. But when we're talking about matters of counseling, conversations, goals in life, desires, those sort of things, psychology is not going to be able to help us there. God's given us all we need to heal the inner man. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for counseling. Back to our case study, Rachel. Um, common grace there, we utilized doctors, several doctor visits. Uh, she had asthma that was on her intake form and her asthma was kicking up. It was a bad time of year in, in this certain place in the country for, for this. And so the doctor was able to help with asthma attacks, but when you can't breathe, you're gonna panic. So this was a complicating factor. So we cared about that. We sent her first session. Her first assignment was go see a general practitioner, have them rule out these things, make sure he checks out asthma, all these kinds of things. And he was able to help her there significantly. Also, it was interesting, she was newlywed. Uh, She was on um, birth control meds. And they were giving some severe complications They were putting some other things way out of whack. Got that under control. But she was also a sufferer. She's one who lives on this side of Genesis 3, where that brain-soul interface just doesn't work right. And so what I'm saying there is that uh, she was someone who, and as I've counseled, there are some people who, who just don't ever worry, don't ever have any anxiety, really, like, it's just not an issue for them. And then there's some people, and a lot of the people who I'm seeing, who just really struggle with worry and anxiety. I don't think that they're any less of a strong believer than the person who ever, never, never, never has an issue with it. Uh, they're just not prone to that. Why is that? Uh, there might be some, that, that, you know, ever since Genesis 3, like I said, our brains don't, our, inner, our, our brain body interface doesn't work perfectly. There could be some of those, those things going on right there. Um, but what was God's ultimate solution for when our bodies don't work right, when our minds just don't work right. Well, it's the gospel, right? 
So he's dealt definitively with the suffering in this life, physical issues, things where, you know, our, where our brains just don't quite work right, these sort of things. So we point her to a compassionate father. We share the gospel, and we point her to a compassionate father. We, we help her study uh, uh, Psalm 46. God is your refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. Run to him when you, start, when you feel like you're having a panic attack. Um, he's a compassionate father. He wants you to come to him with this, with this issue. Right? We didn't... And we, and we talked to her about these things for like the first um, five, six, so, for, so many sessions. We reminded her, there's a day coming, Revelation 21.4, where there's gonna be no more crying or pain anymore. All, all those different things. But as we dealt with all those things, we were also seeing that when we came to the heart, that diagram I had up there before, the things that she was thinking, the things that she was believing, the things that she was wanting, her desires and commitments, we saw that those were off in various places because she was still having these panic attacks that were sending her to the ER. She was a newlywed, newlywed difficulties. And she had some unrealistic expectations about what that would be like and really on herself. She had this, she was committed, right? That goal up there. One of her commitments was to, to be this, uh, you know, better homes. I don't even know what those magazines are that talk about cooking, whatever. Whatever that was, you know, um, to, to be the perfect wife. And, you know, her husband would come home, the house would be clean, perfect meal would be cooked, even though she didn't know how to cook before, but that's just what she had in her mind, right? And so she was failing, but she was raised to achieve. And on top of that, right, she's, she's in college, and she's having a hard time getting straight A's. But that was part of her identity. But she didn't know it. And so we talked to her about that a little bit, how to keep a journal, recording, you know, when you had a panic attack, what things were going through your mind, what things were you committed to, and she was having a hard time really understanding what she was committed to because she wasn't cognitively making a decision each day to be perfect. But we kind of just said, well, you know, how are you raised? And I kind of had a hunch of this being in the area that I was in. And her parents really said, you need to achieve, kind of pushed her to achieve. And she did that. And when she did it, she got accolades. And she liked the attention. And everybody started saying, hey, this gal, Rachel, Rachel has it together. Rachel's this, why don't, you know, all the other kids here, you know, why don't you be more like Rachel? So she, she made a decision five, 10 years ago. She was gonna achieve and she was never gonna fail. That's just who she was. That was part of her identity. That doesn't go away very easy. But when that, when that commitment was clashing with things that she just could not do, she couldn't be the perfect wife. She was not a very good cook. That wasn't gonna happen overnight. And then she was taking college classes in a lot of them and trying to juggle that with being married she had the wrong goal in life. I, hate, I had to break, break it to her. God's goal for you is not to be perfect. God's goal for you is not to be the person in the class who knows every single answer. That's not God's goal for you. God's goal for you is not to be the perfect wife. God's goal for you is to be faithful. But that took some change, right? Initially, she didn't want to hear it. We kind of talked about some pride, some humility, those kinds of things, like around session five. She wasn't ready to hear it, one, because we didn't know her that well, but as she got to know us and know that we were for her, then when I brought her back into the conversation, like session 10, she was like, like she was hearing it for the first time. Came back after I gave her some homework and she was like, I, I, I am so arrogant. I was going, thank you, Lord. Yes, we have made some, some move. And she needed to put on maturity. We were never promised that this life would be easy. Scripture doesn't say you're going to have an easy life. Everything's going to be hunky-dory. So Jesus told, told uh, his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. There's trouble in this life. She had to need to understand that. Her beliefs were wrong about what to expect in life. See what I'm saying? Where are we going to go that's going to tell us the truth about what to expect in life? God's word. She confessed that God was in control of all the different events in her life, but she wasn't believing that. She thought that her true joy came from her husband thinking she was perfect and from the accolades that she would get from school. She wasn't believing Psalm 1611, 
at God's right hand, in our relationship with him is where true joy is located. At your right hand is pleasures forevermore. Not in, not in perfect scores on your exams. So she was really most helped by becoming hard aware, seeing that anxiety was the fruit of things that she was thinking, believing, wanting, and committed to. But it, it took time to get her to this place. It took love, it took patience, it took biblical truth. The outcome of someone who would have been diagnosed with this panic disorder was joy in her relationship with God, no more panic attacks by God's grace. The regular ministries of the church were helping her. She wasn't perfect. It's not like she ever, never battled with anxiety, but she was battling well, and it wasn't debilitating anymore. And she knew where to go for answers, and she knew she'd learned to start to self-counsel, which just meant that she was coming to the scriptures to help correct her wrong thinking and believing, to correct her inner heart. The Bible is sufficient for counseling, even in the hard and complicated cases. We're out of time for questions, but I'm gonna stay up here uh, for questions. So if you have something, if I said something, and this is the first time you've heard it, I've done these lectures before, and it really rubs people's fur the wrong way, I get that, you're not alone. So I'll be up here to answer questions, let me pray for us. Have a good night, be back here early in the morning. Nine o'clock, that's when we start? Nine o'clock. Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you. Thank you for your word, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that you did not leave us without a manual that helps us understand the inner workings of our own soul. And Lord, with which, the comfort with which we receive, may we give that to other people. Uh, give those who are driving tonight safe travels. We love you and thank you. Amen.